you know, Google, Google is a powerful drug <laughs> and, you know, anyone who has a particular bias or wants to find an answer can probably find that answer on Google, but they're not critically evaluating that source or they're not critically evaluating the, the, the data itself. They're just looking for information that will confirm their bias. Welcome to Ununinformed. I'm Sean Seavey. We're talking about coronavirus and its relationship with science. We're talking to Dr. Jason Shepard, who has a PhD in cellular and molecular medicine from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And he's currently an associate professor of neurobiology at the University of Utah. The research he's been conducting is about viruses. Not so much coronaviruses, but about viruses that show up in the brain. Here's Dr. Jason Shepard at TED Med, which is TED Talks for medical topics. My own research lab is tackling some of the most complex questions we know, how our memory is encoded and stored in the brain. And in particular, we're studying the molecular and cellular mechanisms in those brain cells that encode, store, and retrieve memories. And we recently made a surprising discovery that we may have viruses to thank for our own cognition and ability to learn. Our ability to have memories comes from viruses? I recently had a conversation with Jason Shepard where we talked about his research in viruses, the science of coronavirus, and we answered some of your questions about COVID-19. And we also answered a question I've been getting a lot in the last few months. With so many studies that sometimes look to be conflicting, how do we find the truth? Dr. Jason Shepard, welcome to Ununinformed. Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here. So, Jason, your research shows that our brain's ability to have memories has come from an ancient virus. I think that has finally answered a long-held question I've had, and it was this. Are viruses always the bad guys? Yeah, exactly. And so, in this case, we would not be here as humans without that ancient viral infection. And this is not the only example. In fact, another really interesting example is uh, the placenta. So mammals, there's different lineages of mammals that all have placentas. Uh, but one really important protein that allows the placenta to actually um, fuse with the mom is another viral uh, protein or derived protein called syncytin. Um, and it came from also from a retrovirus protein um, that's important for how the virus can fuse to cells. Wow. Um, so this is actually quite common in evolution. Evolution, you know, once something evolves to be useful, it can be adapted for different kinds of functions. Um, and in fact, our own DNA, so if we sequence a person's DNA, yeah. only 2% of the DNA uh, encodes genes uh, and up to 20 to 30% or even more of the sequences in our genome are um, viral-like. So they, they came from a virus at some point. Really? Um, and they've, they've stuck there. They've been passed on from generation to generation. And so in, in, a, in essence, actually, our genomes have a re recording of these ancient viral infections um, that go back, you know, hundreds of millions of years. So it's... And so I think it's interesting, it's going to be interesting to see how many genes have come out of this sort of 
uh, initial viral infection and then been repurposed by evolution. Wow. So we got memory, placenta, (laughs) (laughs) uh, DNA sequencing. Um, So good guys. Okay, well, now let's shift to the bad guys. Um, Let's start talking about the coronavirus. Right. Uh, Can you give me a little uh, mini biology lesson about the coronavirus? What do we know about it? So, um, you know, what's, what, what we don't know about, well, what we do and don't know about this virus is that um, its ancestors, so there's um, sequencing that's been done on the virus so we know exactly what the, this particular coronavirus looks like. Uh, and the most, I guess, the virus that looks similar is a bat coronavirus. Okay. This is why the origins of this new coronavirus happen in China uh, because the, there's a population of bats in China that have many different coronaviruses. And since bats have very similar physiology to humans, occasionally a mutation in a, in a bat virus may then allow that virus to also infect humans. So this is a completely new virus to humans because it's, it's only recently evolved. Yeah. That's what makes it novel. That's the novel part of it. That's the, the novel part, exactly. Novel coronavirus, yeah. Okay. And because it's novel and because no 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 one's really seen this before, none of us have immunity to it. Um, and that's partly why it's more dangerous than other viruses that we know of, because we've never seen it before. And our bodies have never been able to mount a de- defense against it. And that's why we're having all these issues that we've never seen before. And what... And uh, right. I, I do want to compare it to some other viruses, but we'll get into that in a little bit. But let's talk about science. When it comes to science about the coronavirus, many people don't know who or what to trust. We've seen conflicting studies. We've seen health organizations that rely on science that don't quite get it right sometimes. So how are we supposed to navigate all this information? Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, first, firstly, I, you know, I totally understand, you know, why people are frustrated about the uncertainty and the conflicting messages and, um, you know, the question of what, what sources of information to trust is, is a big one these days. Yeah. Um, and part of this is, is due to the fact that this is actually how science works, the process of science. So science is not magic. You have to get to the truth or the answer through um, trial and error in some ways. We, 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 like, we don't like the word error. You know, we like trial and get it right the first time. You know? That's right. <laughs> and, and so for good or bad, what people are seeing now is, is science in action in real, in real time. And it's more public than ever, right? So any, yeah. any result, any potential impact on treatment or impact on um, health is, is, become, is, is a headline. Right. Um, and, you know, to run through how science only works is that uh, scientists will, will have an idea or a hypothesis of how something works, but they have to test whether that hypothesis is right or wrong. And... You know, oftentimes, or in fact, most times, we're wrong um, <laughs> because we don't know enough about how something works. Right. So let's say we're wrong about that particular hypothesis, but the good thing about being wrong is that 
it takes that one avenue of uh, future experiments and then it helps refine your hypothesis until at some point uh, you will be correct most of the time. <laughs> and um, You at least pro- approach the truth. You approach the, tr- the truth. And, um, but the way that we as scientists figure out what is uh, correct or not is not just about, um, you know, the experiments that work, but also critically evaluating the work of others. And that's called peer review and something that's sort of quite new in science is the ability to publish your work um, before it's peer reviewed now. And these are these preprints that you may see where essentially anyone, any scientist can upload a scientific publication or document to that um, uh, preprint server and they publish it without reviewing it. So basically it's like putting a draft of your, of your, um, if you, let's say you're writing an essay and you put a draft on your essay of your essay up for everyone to critique. Um, it's not the final published document that people are going to read. But and that's but, confusing, right? Yeah, because so, the news media isn't really telling us <laughs> the difference yeah. between the, the draft and the final. Exactly. And so that's confusing. And so the good, you know, media, journal, the good science journalists should be saying, look, uh, this, this work or this study that we're commenting on was not peer reviewed, which means it's not been vetted by other scientists as of yet. It doesn't say it's wrong, right? Uh, but it also doesn't mean that you can, you know, be hundred percent confident in it. And, and this is where I think a lot of the confusion is happening in that, uh, there are studies that are definitely flawed that are being put on these preprints, right. but they come to a conclusion that is sensational or the you know, media latch onto, um, and it doesn't have the, the weight that it should have. Yeah, um, so many Facebook posts like, see this, the scientists were wrong because of this study. <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and, so, and, and again, it's, it's tough. Um, you know, Google, Google is a powerful drug <laughs> and, you know, anyone who has a particular bias or wants to find an answer can probably find that answer on Google. Right. Um, and, I, and again, this is sort of where a lot of the misinformation takes off is that, you know, people Google and then they see some headline or some, some, some study that supports their idea um, but they're not critically evaluating that source or they're not critically evaluating, evaluating the, the, the data itself. They're just looking for information that will confirm their bias. Right. Um, confirmation bias. Yes. It's a powerful thing. So there's confirmation bias and then there's something called the Dunning-Kruger uh, effect, which is that the people that don't know a lot about a subject often think that they do. Whereas <laughs> the people who know a lot of, whereas a lot of, you know, whereas the experts who know a lot about something realize what they don't know. And they're, they're humble in that. Um, so, you know, what we really need is, is people to be critical of their own bias. They need to figure out where is their, where are their biases coming from? And are they really the, the, the expert or, or are they capable of evaluating some of the, the information that they're getting? Um, and this is why in the end you have to, you have to rely on experts. And so 
in this case, the experts are virologists that know the virus biology, epidemiologists that know how to model uh, infect, infectious diseases and how they are transmitted, and of course, the health officials that are dealing with, um, and doctors which are dealing on the, which are on the front line of dealing with the actual illness itself. So, so the first thing we look at is when we read an article, who's saying this? And really right. looking at their credentials, right? Yeah, who's saying this? What are their credentials? Um, that's, that, that in itself is not enough. I mean, right. there's this one politician, I think, who's running for Senate in Rhode Island, like, who has a PhD from MIT. Um, and he's, he's been claiming all these really wacko ideas about how the virus does and doesn't work. The, the key is to try and get um, you know, a couple of expert opinions on, on the topic. And generally, I've seen consensus by scientists and many of the sort of controver- so-called controversial aspects of the the virus itself, um, and then of course you know throwing in politics and um, the politicizing of this whole pandemic has been Ugh. a little crazy. Of course, yeah, and people are just and and perhaps things started a little more bipartisan, but but I think things are getting partisan again. So yeah. But, you know, going back to how science works, I, w- I would want to stress that um, the uncertainty that people are seeing is precisely because we're still trying to figure out a lot about how the, the virus works, um, what kind of illnesses it actually creating in people. Um, but, you know, the pace of science that I've seen is just astounding. There are so many universities, so many labs that have that have changed their focus to look, working on COVID. And that's, and that's actually another challenge is to make sense of all the data that's coming in. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's where, again, you have to sort of choose your experts of who you want to uh, get your information from. From here, I kind of want to talk about some of the questions I've got from Facebook. I also want to talk about your article uh, it was called Misinformation Goes Viral, right? <laughs> submitted to Medium. Um, right. Which I can, I love that title. <laughs> um, it, I wish it wasn't true. Um, but th- there is one thing you did talk about in your article about healthcare workers uh, and scientists. You talk about the intention of healthcare workers and scientists. Can you, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's sort of sad in a way that we even have to sort of talk about this or justify this. Right. Um, you know, so that Medium article that I posted kind of did go viral in itself, which was surprising. <laughs> Congrats. Uh, um, I think it's got, you know, 2 million views now. Um, and part of the reason why I posted or wrote it was because of all the Facebook discussions that people were having and all the, the common conspiracy theories. And, um, you know, one of the one of the pushbacks I get as a scientist is that I somehow have a hidden agenda yeah. that I'm um, being funded by big pharma or <laughs> billionaires, or there's some sort of reason why I'm coming out and saying, no, this is right. And this is wrong. And it's, it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, the scientists that I, almost every scientist I know goes into science, certainly not for the money, not getting paid, <laughs> you know, uh, massive amount of money to go into science. In fact, as a graduate student and as a postdoc, which is, you know, equivalent of residency, you know, I was making less than $30,000 a year. And, you know, it's, it's not that we're 
in school for 10 extra years to get a billion dollars. So anyway, so <laughs> most of us go into it because we love the, the, the process of discovery. We want to make an impact on the world for good. Um, and, you know, the science that we do, oftentimes we have no idea if it will uh, end up being very useful for, for disease or human health. Um, but there, you know, there's, there's a ton of coronavirus researchers that never thought that they would be uh, in the middle of a pandemic that their <laughs> research is really, you know, critical for. Finally. So, um, so that's just a long-winded answer to say that, you know, scientists in general should be trusted. They don't have a hidden agenda. They're not being, you know, um, funded through some crazy uh, billionaire plot to take over the world. But, you know, occasionally there are scientists, certainly scientists are human. They're going to have their own um, foibles, they, an ego, and they, they, they you know, they'll, there are, there are some cases where they, they will be wrong or they, they go against consensus. But scientists are just trying to figure out how the world works. Um, yeah. And then on the flip side, you know, the, the people that are actually working in the hospitals, the nurses, the doctors, the healthcare workers, I don't understand how anyone can um, lay, a, lay a finger on their, their intentions because their job is literally to help and save people. Um, I heard some really crazy ideas about how hospitals would make more money if they, if they said that, that more people were dying from COVID. Or if they, they uh, use the that, COVID, if they code it that way or something yeah, like that. Yeah, if they code it that way, that the numbers are wrong because uh, the hospitals are, Getting some you know, kind of get more money. I don't know where this money would come from, Yeah, but I, I, I like to say that almost every hospital right now is hemorrhaging money because all the COVID patients are being looked after and none of the elective surgery where they get most of their money from right. are happening. So there are, there's no, <laughs> I mean, again, it's just preposterous that this is even something that people think. Um, and, and, you know, these people are putting their lives on, on the line that yeah. for, for so long, uh, early in the, the pandemic, they didn't even have the right protective gear. Um, and many, many uh, health work, healthcare workers got COVID right. and came sick and, um, you know, some even died. So uh, this is just to say that, you know, again, people seem to, some people, and this is just a few, but some people seem to be going out of the way to, to confabulate that this, this whole COVID pandemic is made up and that it's not as bad as it seems. And all you have to do is go to your local hospital to uh, see that that's not the case. Let's talk about another thing in your article. Um, you talked about the credibility of the doctors and scientists. Um, what about the credibility of the numbers? We've talked about this already, but one of your bullet points in your Medium article it was the numbers and models are not deliberately misleading people. What, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I know. And this is, again, goes to the, um, the discussion we're having about how science works. Yeah. You know, the models are only as good as the data that goes into the model. And considering that we knew nothing about this virus five months ago, you know, I think it's it, it was always going to be uh, somewhat of a guessing game of how the virus was going to uh, transmit and infect people and the seriousness of the of the illness itself. Um, none of that was sort of clear until you know a, a month or two after the pandemic hit. 
and, um, and there were just aspects of the virus that that were not clear until uh, there was enough data. So, for example, uh, early on, there were some reports saying that uh, people who were infected were asymptomatic. So, meaning like you had no idea that you actually had the viral infection because you weren't getting sick. Yeah, and and that sort of was a perfect storm because it meant that people were going on with their lives as normal and passing on the virus unknowingly. And that's part of why um, it spread so quickly because within a couple of weeks, um, people had spread it all over because they weren't sick. Um, so even the people that eventually did become sick um, had already spent a couple of weeks just um, you know going on with their business. Yeah. And if we had known that, if we had known that there was more asymptomatic uh, people, we could have dealt with this pandemic a little differently. And in fact, that's how South Korea really managed to lock down their um, COVID cases, which is to say, as soon as they knew someone was positive for the virus, they would do something called contact tracing, where they would try and get a history of all the people that that person came into contact with and then they would test those people to see if they also had the virus. Um, and so a combination of this contact tracing and massive amounts of testing, they were able to isolate the pockets of infectious people and stop them from um, interacting with others. And, you know, now they, they virtually have no new cases each day. And, um, have <sighs> so jealous. The- <laughs> <laughs> wow. But that, that's great when they, you're able to pounce on it like that. And uh, Yeah. Well, let me get into maybe the, the fun part of kind of bringing up some things that may be conspiracy theories or just things that people are confused about. Uh-huh. And let's talk about what the science has to say. So I reached out on Facebook and, and someone asked about uh, coronavirus on surfaces. This was from Becky Burke. She said, some say COVID-19 can last more than 17 days on surfaces. She's talking about the study on the, the cruise ship. Um, yeah, others say it's only a couple of days. So I, I, how do we reconcile that? Uh, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I'm not actually sh- sure where the 17-day number comes from because I've never seen something like that. Um, the longest I've seen for the, an intact virus that could be infectious is three days yeah. on, on a surface. And I would say most surfaces, um, especially metal surfaces, copper, um, or surfaces that um, that are usually you know cleaned a lot, um, the virus is only there for a couple of hours. Cardboard uh, and plastics, are, the virus can last longer. Um, but even on plastics, it, it it doesn't seem to be able to survive longer than three days. The other thing there is that it's very easy to kill this virus. And that's partly because, because the membrane is fragile and it's sensitive to detergent. Once you disrupt that membrane, the virus cannot infect people. Just hand soap, just any old soap will kill that virus. You don't need special antivirals or you know special bleach or anything, any soap will kill the virus as long as you're thorough in washing the surface or washing your 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 hands, etc. Well, so when you're, and I, I'm curious about this, so when you 
if you've bleached something or you know if you've killed it you can still see the rna there remnants there is that yeah exactly okay i think that explains the 17 days thing because i i had never heard of the 17 days thing and i looked it up and they said the rna stays there 17 days Uh, right right exactly so um and this goes to something else that maybe you know would be useful for people to know so the way uh the COVID test works is that it looks for the the viral RNA, yeah. and it's a very sensitive test because essentially you only need a few molecules of RNA um, for the the test to actually detect um, the virus, and it's it, it, but it's, it's agnostic to whether the RNA is intact or if it's in bits and pieces. Oh, um, and this is actually also why there's been some reports of people that have got COVID and then recovered and then been retested for the virus. And then there's the PCR, which is the name of the, 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 the kind of process that the test uses, yeah. picks up the, the remnants of the virus, even in a person, one, you know, cause the body is basically degraded the virus to the point where just some RNA molecules are hanging out, but it's not an infectious um, particle. It's not an infectious virus anymore. It's just, the RNA. Oh, but some people mistakenly thought those people got coronavirus twice. Is that yeah, what you're getting exactly. at? Cause- and, that, and that, of course, is going to be important. We, we want to know if you recover from COVID, whether you're then immune to um, another infection. And tell me what we know about that. Yeah, what do we know? What does the science say so far? So the science says that um, it seems to be the case that even if you did not have a um, symptoms or a strong uh, reaction to the virus, you will still generate antibodies against the virus that allow the body to clear out the virus yeah. in the first place. And there's something called neutralizing antibodies that the, the, the immune system generates. And those neutralizing antibodies then uh, hang out in the body for, for a long time. And so if you do get re-exposed to the same virus, um, essentially those neutralizing antibodies can then um, attack the virus and kill it. So it, I think it's clear then that most people who are exposed that get the virus can make these antibodies. They end up being immune to that virus. But what we don't know yet is how long that immunity will last. So, you know, in some cases when you are immune um, let's say you get exposed as a child to some of these viruses, then you're immune for almost all your life. Oh, like chicken pox. You just need that one. Chicken pox you need like once or something. Yeah, right? exactly. You just need that one exposure and you're good. Right. Um, but it really depends on the virus. And so, um, you know, we know, for example, the flu virus, um, we don't, we have some immunity to the flu virus but every year there's a new strain that evolves partly because the flu uh, virus can mutate very quickly. And so then it looks slightly different to the last year's strain. And then your body says, okay, I'm not sure if this is the old flu or is it something new, but um, it doesn't quite work as well. And so this is also the case for some coronaviruses, um, in that uh, there's 
three or four different coronaviruses that we know of that can infect humans. This we've known this way before this new virus came out, yeah. and they they cause about a third of the common cold uh, symptoms that people have. And there's no vaccine against them because it seems that um, immunity to those coronaviruses only lasts like a year or two. Um, and because the symptoms are so mild, there's no real, real point in, in, um, in, in, in making a vaccine. Okay. Um, and so this is all to say that I think immune people will be probably immune, um, after they recover. And especially if they have enough of the antibodies that are generated. Um, but time will tell how long that immunity will last. So you mentioned the flu, which remind me of a, a thing you brought up in your article and that I've heard so many people talk about on Facebook comparing coronavirus to the flu. It's like, oh, this is this is just like the flu, but we're overreacting. And to be honest, when I, when I look at the number of the flu, like there's a lot of people affected by the flu. And, and I haven't looked at the numbers for a while. When I looked at it, the coronavirus numbers didn't seem to be orders of magnitude more um, than the flu. So t- tell me, tell me how, how I should understand that. So, um, I mean, the first thing is to, is to say that the flu can be very dangerous to people that are vulnerable, right? So yeah. young kids and all older people, every year people die of the flu and it is dangerous. And this is why people should take the vaccine, even if the vaccine is not 100% useful. Yeah. Um, it does prevent transmission and it does help people that are vulnerable. So that's my first sort of soapbox in that, you know, I wish people had realized earlier that we do need vaccines against some of these diseases yeah. and they work. They, they absolutely work. Uh, and now we're finding out just how well they work because we're being bombarded by a virus that we don't have a vaccine <laughs> for. And so now suddenly everyone wants a vaccine. <laughs> yeah. And we, we see a world without vaccines, which exactly. Yeah. Um, but the flu in itself, um, even though it is, you know, it's still a fairly dangerous, um, virus, the, the mortality rate is 0.1%. So one in a thousand, uh, at most, the current estimates for COVID are around 0.5 to 1%. So, you know, that's anywhere from five to 10 times more lethal than the flu. Yeah. Now the numbers, those numbers are also uncertain, partly because the way you get that number, of course, is to know how many people are infected versus how many people have died. And since there's not enough testing in most places in America, we don't really know yet how many people have been infected. Let's just take New York city, for example, right now in New York, city, there's around 8 million people, and there's already been about 30,000 deaths that we know of, that I stress, that we know of. That's 30,000 deaths in one city of 8 million people. The total number of people that die per year of the flu in the U.S. is 30,000 people. So in, you know, a couple of months, we've had the, the year's worth of total flu deaths in America occurring in one city. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is not the flu. This is not the flu. And that's just, that's just the deaths, right? So that doesn't right. can't, can't take into account the number of people that are hospitalized, hospitalized the number of people that are in ICUs, um, the burden on the healthcare system. 
all of that is the reason why um, social distancing and, you know, working from home and all that was implemented. And it's worked. I mean, many places, California, um, Washington State, they're seeing a decrease in the numbers of their cases because they started that um, lockdown pretty, pretty early. Yeah. So, and it, you know, and I get, and again, I get the frustration about the economy and all that. Um, but I'm also getting frustrated with people who say, well, why did we social distance? It didn't really do anything and it's not so lethal anyway. And I'm like, the reason why you're not seeing so many people die in your city is because this social distancing works. Yeah. And, um, you can't win. Yeah, exactly. And I knew this would happen. I mean, I'm fine with it. I'd rather save lives than not. Um, but it's like saying to someone, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to take my, you know, headache pills anymore because I don't have a headache. And um, why should I prevent more headaches? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, th- I think that no matter how the numbers are going to fall, it, this, this, uh, the COVID illness is worse than the flu. And, you know, this, and again, we also don't know what kind of long-term effects there will be on people who do recover from the disease. Um, you know, anything from lung damage to cardiovascular issues to neurological, dis- uh, neurological issues. We just, we just don't know yet. So, right. um, you know, people are looking for an excuse to compare this to the flu and I realize that, it, that, you know, I know why it's because people don't really want to acknowledge that this is a bad, that this thing is bad and that there's um, reasons why the economy and the, the country has to be on lockdown. Well, I got another question. This is uh, from uh, Pramod Sumarajan. He says, does it spread through the air? Is it airborne? Um, and at first I thought, well, I thought we knew a lot about this, but the more I look into it being airborne, um, that, that is a legitimate question, I think. It is. Um, yeah, and I can see the confusion. There, there was actually confusion initially on how to describe this. And part of it's because, you know, when the virus is spread, it can be spread in the air because yeah. it's... Um, it's a respiratory disease, so it's in people's lungs. And so when they cough or when they, even when they talk, it's coming out of their, their, their body, right? Right. Um, but really the, the, the definition of airborne is to say that the air itself is what allows the, the, the virus to infect people. And so if you just breathe the air, you get it. What seems to be the case for, for the, the coronavirus is that um, it's in these water droplets that are spread from people in the air. Um, because it's in a water droplet, though, it can't travel that far. And so this is where the six-foot rule came in, yeah. where it seems to be the case that if you're six foot away from a person, the droplets that the virus is in cannot travel past six feet. So that's kind of the confusion. So it's basically an aerosol, which means that it's in a water droplet, and it can be spread in the air, but it's not just airborne. Eventually the droplet will hit a surface and that's where it will stay. So it seems to be the case that most transmission happens through surface contact where someone has spread their water droplets um, all over the place 
and it's on a surface and then someone unwittingly touches the surface and then wipes it their their face or touches their face and that's the primary way that the the virus can get into the body um and that you, that mostly happens through the nose so this virus in particular seems to love the nose yeah. um there are cells in the nose that that'll attach to um it can also get in to the eyes the eyes um again um can allow entry and occasionally i'd say it could also get in, in through the airways in your mouth of course if you breathe uh, a lot of um contaminated air but i would say I, I, most most of the the transmission seems to occur through the nose and you wipe your nose or um something like that okay i got another question this is from mahi rajan who lives in south india which is a hot climate and she said so about heat and the coronavirus i've heard that there is research that the the virus doesn't survive that long, but I heard claims that that wasn't true. So, yeah, Jason, what do you have to say about that? The heat. I want to know about that. Right. Um, yeah, and this this goes back to um, the seasonality of many infectious diseases. So the flu, for example, most people get sick in the winter, but not in the summer. And that's partly because uh, the flu virus itself is sensitive to temperature it doesn't like hot surfaces. It doesn't like sunlight, um, that sort of stuff. So um, then the question is, is this new coronavirus temperature sensitive? And there is some data suggesting that it may be. We don't really know how sensitive this virus is or how um, how much temperature can prevent transmission. Yeah. Um, so I would say let's. we probably can't bet on it, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a some sort of effect on um, transmis- transmission. Um, but all that means is that, you know, we could get another big spike in the fall when, um, when, the, when things get cold again. Apparently that happened in the 1918 flu. People have talked about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. In fact, the second wave was more deadly than the first wave. So... <laughs> So don't relax. Quite don't relax. Long, yeah. yeah. Well, I got another question. This is from uh, Eric Smith. Um, he, he had a lot of questions about opening up the economy. Um, so w- what's the best way to open up the economy? What does the research say? And, well, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, so I don't think there's any scientists that say we should, shouldn't be thinking about opening the economy. We all know that, you know, you can't keep a... A country or state or city on lockdown forever, um, but there needs to be a plan for reopening, and there needs to be a clear mandate on how to do that. And for me, I think the the clearest um, way to do this is to have a, a lot of testing and to have contact tracing. So, test a lot of people, make sure that you're not getting uh, transmission, community transmission. And when you do find uh, a person that is positive, then you have to figure out who they've come into contact with so you can notify people and allow them to change their behavior. I mean, I, I hope that no one knowingly wants to infect others, right? Yeah. And so if you know that you have the virus, then you should quarantine yourself. Right. Um, and the only way to do that is either you get sick or if you get tested. And so, um, you know, it comes down to testing. So we need a lot of testing. We need enough testing so that we can tell 
uh, whether people are sick or not, whether they are infectious or not. Um, And then I still think that, you know, we're not going to be able to go back to normal even as we open things up. So large gatherings, you know, um, um, social distancing, keeping masks on, all of that stuff still needs to happen until the numbers of cases really drop dramatically. And I think the problem is that people just want to get on with their lives as per usual. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me included. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think we all do, and I. But it's, I think that we, the reality is that if we want to prevent, reduce the duration of the pandemic, then we're gonna just have to suck it up for a bit. <laughs> that, that's fine. Uh, I've got a lot of life in front of me, so I, I could, I could hold on a little longer. Exactly. So do the hard work now, so that it pays off later, and, and um, we can get through this. So I'll take a, you know, one example is my home country of New Zealand. Yeah. that took pretty extreme measures very quickly. They locked down the country, prevented travel, and then initiated a full countrywide lockdown. People weren't really allowed to even get out of their house unless they um, were going out for you know, groceries. Um, so they, they, they ended up within six weeks eliminating essentially community transmission. There's been zero cases of new uh, COVID. Wow. Um, <laughs> for the last few days and or a week or so. And they've only had, you know, something like 30 people die out of a country of 5 million people. Wow. So it's doable. It can be done. Of course, New Zealand is a isolated country in itself. It's an island. So there's, it has all of that to help um, prevent sure. people from getting into the country itself. Um, but, you know, and of course, no one wanted to be quarantined in their house for six weeks without being able to go outside. Right. Um, but now they're relaxing the restrictions and they, they think that within the next you know, month or so, life in New Zealand will be almost back to normal other than you know, perhaps traveling out and in and out of the country. Wow. Hopefully we'll get there soon. And I know everybody probably wants to go to New Zealand, but they're probably not going to let us in. <laughs> well, be- just know that if you do travel to New Zealand, that right now there's a two-week quarantine, so you have to stay in a hotel um, in quarantine for two weeks before they let you out. Into the- <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to think about whether that's worth it, but I, I yeah. know Hawaii is like that right now, t- now too. And I actually need to cancel uh, flights to Hawaii because I, I booked them a few months ago. <laughs> so I got to get on that. Um, so to wrap things up, to help us navigate all of this, any last thoughts on, on how, how we could handle all this information, the fact versus crap? Anything else you'd want to throw out there? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at an article, I mean, if if you're in a particular political party or you you want to look at your news sources, I would suggest you know going out of your comfort zone and looking at maybe the opposite political news sources for a bit. Yeah, we all have our own biases. We all want to find answers to confirm those biases. But essentially what scientists do is that they find every way they can to deny their hypothesis or, uh, or prove their hypothesis wrong. Yeah. And, um, and we need, I think we all need to be a little bit humble in, you know, knowing what we can and knowing what we are capable of and what, what experts have spent decades figuring out um, versus you just Googling 
something for right. five minutes. Well, Dr. Jason Shepard, uh, thank you so much for your time. Dr. Shepard is a professor of neurobiology at the University of Utah. Hey, thanks. Yeah, thanks. And, and just one more disclaimer. Sure. Know, these are my own views, not the <laughs> University of Utah's views. <laughs> yeah, hey, that, that's good. Wow. Hey, we, we like disclaimers. It means that we're, we have that scientific humility. So that's good. <laughs> scientific humility. That's become something I've added to my vocabulary these days. And for me, it includes the willingness to listen to other people's perspectives, even when they don't align with my opinions. So I'm about to share an example of me hearing someone out with different opinions on the coronavirus than what I have. You'll see what I mean. I asked some listeners to submit COVID-themed songs to be on the podcast. Here are two. First, David Spackman submitted a song describing how the U.S. government's and citizens' response to the COVID-19 pandemic shows how we've given into tyranny. Huh. I certainly don't feel that way. But sing it out, Dave. I'll back you up on mandolin. Oh, remember our history back in 1776 When we fought against tyranny Became an independent nation Freedom's less of an instinct But a value to be cherished We used to be brave. Give me liberty or give me death. Now we're scared of a virus and we can't even ask if the fear-driven cure does more harm than the illness. Oh, say does that fear-spangled banner now As we allow new tyranny, we'll not be safe, but sorry. In contrast, this next song is something that very much resonates with me. It was submitted by Eric Smith, and he wrote it during a stay-at-home order. And he expresses his desire to help with the pandemic, even though he's stuck at home. It's called... Homebound Heroes. Start the day and let the night end. Fight off the gray, don't let the darkness win. Father 
Thanks for listening to Ununinformed. Next episode, we'll be having a slamdemic, where I ask three poets to describe how they're experiencing the pandemic. Here's a little preview. And with everything that's going on, the stores are all sold out of most of the things that we all think we cannot live without. But most of those items I really don't need to live within my means. If I remember this simple truth, happiness is beans. You've been listening to Ununinformed. I hope to see you in the next episode, which I'll be releasing in the next week or two. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.